Mighty God, thank you for welcoming us into your presence during these teaching moments, during these times when we get to hear from your scriptures in a special way, in community, in the presence of our friends and people that we're doing life with, or for anyone who's new, for this group of people we're kind of peering in on and going, what what are these folks about? What do we want to be about? And in these next moments, God, we pray that you would answer that question for all of our hearts, that we desire to be about Jesus. We desire to be about the work he is calling us to do as a church, the mission he has given to us, but that that mission can't go anywhere without our hearts first belonging to you and first loving you and being surrounded by your love, both now together as a church and throughout the week. So bless us as we hear from your scriptures. May the words of my mouth and the things that we consider in our hearts be pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, it's great to see all of you this morning. Can I show you one of my favorite pictures? Would you like to see one of my favorite pictures? Okay. This is one of my favorite pictures. There we go. I got an awe. All right. So some of you uh, know my family well, some of you not as much. So my son Will is on the right. He'll be six this summer. Uh, Hadley is in the middle. She will be four in October. And then the baby, Amelia, just turned one. So those are my three. And these... Three little people are just an incredible part of my life. And if you're a parent or if you are connected to kids in any way, I think you can relate to this. You know stuff about your kids. You know facts. You know data. You know when they were born. You might remember kind of their weight and all these kinds of important details. I know a lot about my kids' daily life right now because I spend a lot of time with them kind of before and after work. So I'm on morning duty at our house. So that means... When they're up, I'm up. I'm doing breakfast with them. I'm getting them ready for the day. I know that when my son, Will, first wakes up, he needs a couple of minutes to kind of figure out, like, okay, how's this day going to go? What, and answer the first important question of his day, what do I want for breakfast? He needs some time to kind of warm up to that. That's fine. That's all good. I'm still working on my first cup of coffee. I know, though, that my girls, Hadley and Amelia, could eat the same thing for breakfast every single day and not mind one bit. Hadley would eat frosted mini-wheats so they came out of her ears, and Amelia can eat her weight in pancakes. So for the two of them, I know where they're going. I know some things about them, too, about their character that seems to be forming. What kind of people might they be becoming? I see them learning how to relate to one another in their lives. What are their roles going to be as siblings with one another? And I know that my role as their dad is one of the most important jobs I will ever have. Now, what if I just knew stuff about my kids? What if all I knew about them was data? What if I could sort of have this cold distance from it? Like, if you work in tech or if you work with a lot of numbers, if you work in programming, what if knowing them was just like looking at your screen when you're writing lines of code? And it was just detached. It was just a thing. It was just something that I kind of knew about. What if I had an accident And my brain's ability to be emotional just stopped. This happens to people. You lose your emotions and everything becomes pure, cold data. So I would have no response to them when they came running up to me after I got home from work. Or when they were joyful, I wouldn't necessarily feel their joy. It sounds kind of awful, right? Like, none of us would want to live that way. If you have have kids or if you don't have kids, you wouldn't want to live that way. And yet I think a challenge that I'm confronted with, and I know this is true for a lot of us too because I've talked to you guys about this, a lot of us struggle with this same dynamic in our relationship with God. 
If you're a follower of Christ, if you follow Jesus, you may be able to agree with me when I say, sometimes it's hard to feel that. Sometimes it's hard to get that in that grand distance from the head to the heart. I might know stuff about Jesus. Some of you are great Bible scholars. Some of us have advanced degrees in theology. But sometimes it feels like that gap between the head and the heart is huge. And I wonder what it takes for us to sort of close that gap. I wonder how God might want us as a community to be about feeling what he is doing in us, not just thinking about it. The reality is we need both. Like, we can't have this weird dichotomy of like, well, it's all got to be head or it's all got to be heart. We're all going to come to God in different ways. And I'm not going to claim that today's sermon is going to sort of settle this great debate once and for all, right? But I believe at the core, the way that we find our way into actually loving God, actually experiencing that emotionally, experiencing that in a way that touches us, like when my kids run up to me after I come home from work, that touches me. That's one of the best parts of my week, you guys. For us to be able to feel that way about our loving God, that actually takes a lifetime. That's not a journey that we're going to sort of cover in one morning together. But I think today's text is going to help us get there in a really profound way. It has, it has so much to say about both knowledge and love, so we're going to talk about both today. And if you want to open up your bulletins, there's a bit of an outline in there. And you can follow along with me as we look at these three different headings and consider both knowing God and the love of God. We're going to talk about the context, kind of where are we? Like, if you're just dropping in, like, we've been studying Ephesians, but what does that mean? And where, where have we been so far? We're going to talk about knowledge beyond knowledge, kind of this language, almost a hyperbole that Paul uses. And then we're going to end with an amazing promise that God is able. All of this is going to happen in our passage today, and it's, it's really an incredible passage. So if you're a thesis person and you'd like a thesis to write down to kind of unite where we're going, it goes like this. God is able to love us extravagantly so we can simply love him. God is able to love you. He's able to love me. It's extravagant, and it's so we can simply love him. So let's talk about the context together. Where are we going with this? We've been talking about identity throughout this series on the book of Ephesians. Ephesians is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church centuries ago. We believe it was kind of circulated around to different churches, not just the church in Ephesus, but a lot of churches in that region. And basically, the first half of the book is about what is the church? What does it mean to be in the family of God, in the community of God? You may ask yourself this question when you come here on Sundays. What am I doing here? We've been talking about that. I'm glad that you're here to listen to the rest of it. The second half of Ephesians is about what does life together in the church look like? Kind of attempting to answer those questions of like, well, how should I treat my neighbor? And how should I be in relationship with someone that I know through my church? So the two themes that we actually talked about last week that come right back up again in this week's sermon, we're going to touch on very briefly. And if you want to write these down, the first theme is from far off to family. God moves us from being far off into his family. That's the first theme. And the second theme is Christ is our cornerstone. We talked about those last week. If you want to go back, grab the podcast, listen to that teaching. I think it'll be helpful to you. From far off to family. We see Paul referring to this in verse 6. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to Ephesians chapter 3 with me. If you don't have a Bible, we have a stack of them on the back table. You're welcome to grab one of those. You're welcome to use your Bible app, whatever you like. So Ephesians chapter 3, verse 6, Paul is writing about this mystery, this amazing thing that God has done in and through the church. He builds up to it, builds up to it, builds up to it. And finally, in verse 6, he lays his cards on the table and he says this. That is, the Gentiles have become fellow heirs, 
members of the same body and shares in the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. This past week, uh, our teaching team from Bethany got away on a retreat together. We get away once a year, all the different pastors of the Bethany churches. We come together, we pray, we study the scriptures, we try to plan out our sermon series for the coming year. And this year, we were all studying this passage together as well. So we were preparing this week's sermon together. And, you know, we're at this wonderful house on a lake. There's uh, a couple of guys working on the sermon in the kitchen. There's a few of us kind of out on the lawn. I was out sitting by the pool. Yes, there was a pool. It's an amazing house. And Brad, the pastor from Bethany Ballard, who's one of my favorite people, we're all studying this together. All of a sudden, he opens up the door. He sticks his head out, and he goes, Guys, we're in. We're good. That's the point. And then slams the door. (laughs) And we're all like, Okay, great. We can all go home. You did it. We're in. We're good. That is the summary of verse 6. That is what Paul is saying is one of the most profound parts of the identity of the church. People who are far from God, who the Jews thought were just Gentiles. They didn't think they were far from God. They just thought Gentiles were far from God. They're in. People who are far, far out there in terms of their culture, in terms of what they've been involved with. The woman from Luke chapter 7, the Samaritan woman at the well, all these people from different backgrounds. God is saying through the church, I have a place for you. I have a place for you at my table. I have a place for you in my family. As Brad said, we're in. This is not religion. Religion is do this and you're in. Accomplish this goal and you're in. Pray the right prayer and you're in. This is not religion. Paul is telling his audience, as someone who's very familiar with religion, who lived his whole life as a religious zealot until he met Jesus, Paul is telling people in an audacious way, no matter what your past is, what your background is, what your culture is, what kind of baggage you got in your family, through Jesus Christ, you belong to a new family. You have a place at the table from far off to family. That's the first theme. Thank God for that theme. The second theme is that Christ is the cornerstone. I'm going to tell us why these themes matter in just a minute. From far off to family is the first theme. The second theme is from uh, is Christ is the cornerstone. We heard about this two weeks ago and last week, so I'm going to read these very, very briefly. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 20 is where we get this phrase. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are citizens with the saints. From far off to family. We just talked about that. And you are members of the household of God, built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. Paul picks up on this a little bit later on in chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. I won't read those for us, but I encourage you to read chapter 3 on your own time this week. And what the point I want to try to make here is that Paul understood that the only way to bring people in who are far from God, the only way for the church to keep growing and reaching more people and taking off like a rocket, is if this far off from, from far off to family movement continued through Jesus Christ. It couldn't happen through people trying to pretend like they were Jewish. It couldn't happen from people who weren't Jewish pretending like they were something else. It could only happen when people kept coming into the knowledge of Jesus himself. Paul writes about this in verse three of, or verse 8 of chapter 3. Although I'm the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to me to bring to the Gentiles the news of the boundless riches of Christ. That's a humble statement. I'm the least of these. I'm the least worthy person to be up here preaching to you guys. I'm the least worthy person to be in my office, to be in my school, to be trying to talk to my neighbors about Jesus, or just trying to love my neighbors. I'm the least worthy person of that, and yet, this is the task that God has given to you and to me. 
He has placed us in a particular spot, in our particular context, with the relationships that we have, at the job you may not like very much right now, with the kids that aren't your favorites right now, whatever the place you have may be, God has put you there for a purpose. And don't you think he wants to do something through you in your place? I think so. And I think the text is telling us that through Paul's witness. I'm the least of these, but here I am. I'm being used. The main reason these two themes, far off to family, Christ as cornerstone, is so important is because these two things fueled the effectiveness of the early church. The early church took off like a rocket after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Nothing had ever been seen like that before. Think about it. The Roman Empire is spread all over the world at this time, from all the way in Spain to Iraq to down into Egypt. I mean, they're covering all the ground that they can. A massive institution, far unlike anything anyone had ever seen. And we know from both Roman scholars, secular scholars, and from Christian scholars at the time that the church steadily grew, not just in numbers, but in influence during this time in history. When Paul was writing this letter, the church was quickly becoming this thing that people were starting to go, what's going on over there? Why are those people living that way? What are they doing? I'm noticing this. This was a rising tide of credibility for the church in the marketplace of ideas. And the Roman Empire desperately needed to hear about this. Why? The Roman Empire was brutal. It was unparalleled in its brutality. Remember this theme, Pax Romana, the Roman peace? How all throughout the Roman Empire, you're supposed to live in peace with your neighbors. Stuff was supposed to work good for you. Yeah, the way that that was accomplished was through a river of blood. It was through violence and through oppression and through people who were on the margins being kept on the margins and not being welcomed in. Christians, as they grew in influence around the empire, they started doing things like looking at the poor, looking at the marginalized, looking at the sick and going, we got to go help these folks. And they did it because Jesus told them to. That's fascinating. Jesus told them to care for the poor. They cared for the poor. That's amazing. What if we were known simply as a church that cared for the poor? What if that was our calling card? What if that was our credibility? That could be incredible. Orphans during the time of the, ancient, of the Roman Empire had no place to go. No one was going to care for an orphan. You lost your mom and dad. You were on your own. Or worse, you were sold into slavery. Orphans had a place to go because the church said, no, those are our kids. Those are kids that are made in the image of God, and we are going to take care of them. And so the orphanage movement was launched. Care and compassion was offered to people who were outcasts, who were brokenhearted. Hospitals got started. People began to question the very reality that they were living under, the Roman Empire, to the degree that over time, things like the gladiator games went away because nobody showed up. And things like the persecution of Christians and marginalized people ended because more and more leaders in the Roman Empire believed in Jesus. And there was a sea change happening. By these efforts, empowered and codified by the Holy Spirit, the church began to flourish. The credibility of the church happened because people were brought in from far off, they were made into family, and this was all done through the foundation of Jesus Christ. And so the question for you and I today is, what is the credibility of the Christianity that we present? What is the credibility, the believability, the tangibility of the Jesus that we who follow him claim to follow? How does that stack up when you're at work and someone tells you or reveals you know, through kind of a sleight of hand that they might be agnostic or they've gotten burned by the church? There's a lot of folks who've gotten burned by the church, and I get it. 
What is the credibility of the Jesus that we claim to follow in those moments when it just seems like there's no way to get through to someone, there's no way that faith can kind of come up against this barrier? Not true. We are called to present Jesus in a way to our friends and neighbors, not in a way that's sort of tacit and sly and sort of private, but certainly not the Bible-thumping bullhorn either. That doesn't work in our day. What if the credibility of Christ that we are able to bring to the people we know and love is that he is robust, he's alive, that when you pray to Jesus, he walks right across the room and meets you where you are, and he talks with you just like you talk to him? And what if we talk to our coworkers and our colleagues like he talks to us, like he talks in the scriptures? What if we cared for the people who are on the margins? So many of you are doing this, and I'm so glad for this. One encouragement I want to offer us as we think about this, a practical thing, how could we increase or better present the credibility of Christ? Every one of us in this room, whether you're a parent or not, is connected to a kid because we have kids here in this church. We have kids over there. We have kids out in the preschool room. Every one of us has an opportunity to influence the faith of those kids. And you're like, I don't like kids. I don't want to be around kids. That's fine. They're looking at you. They're watching you. They are seeing the kind of credibility that you can bring to the table. And believe me, when you do it sincerely, when you do it in the way that God has wired you to do it, it's really good. If you look at your little flyer that was inside of your bulletin, you'll see toward the bottom of the flyer that there's going to be something we're going to do together on August 26th. August 26th is going to be a day that we are going to go and serve at Robert Frost Elementary School, and we're going to help that school get ready for the school year. We're going to help bless those teachers and the staff and the students by showing up, by quietly doing this before the school year starts, helping teachers prep their classrooms and doing all kinds of things in the school because kids and grown-ups will grow in their faith when we serve together, when we are side-by-side one another doing the work of God in ways that make sense to our neighbors. So August 26th, be there, bring your kids there because there's going to be a lot of fun stuff for kids to do. And make that a priority because that is one of the ways that the credibility of Jesus Christ enters more deeply into our hearts and it enters more deeply into the world that we live in. So that's the first movement. That's context. That's a lot to think about, I know. There's two more pieces we need to talk about, though. We need to talk about the prayer that Denise read for us. Knowledge beyond knowledge is kind of the heading that we're stepping into now. We've learned that God has brought us in from far off to family. He's done this by grounding his community of the church in Jesus Christ. We're called to continue this work. And now Paul prays for the church in this beautiful way. And he uses such incredible language around it, right? I just want us to hear this again because it's just, it's poetic and it's hyperbolic. It's just fascinating. So listen to verses 14 through 19. Just hear these. Paul's praying for the church. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth takes its name. I pray that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant that you may be strengthened in your inner being with power through his spirit, and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith as you're being rooted and grounded in love. I pray that you may have the power to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God." I've spent all week studying that passage. It is no less head-spinning for me to read it to you today than it has been all week, trust me. But I think there's a way through it. All of these incredible things, height and depth and being understand the breadth of God, the power of God, all these incredible things are possible through one big thing, 
One thing that when I say it, you're going to know it, and you might groan a little bit, but you know it's the truth. The biggest thing that we crave and seek and scratch and claw after, and that is love. Paul is writing poetically because he has been captured by the love of God. And in this particular text, the word love is used twice. I just read it to you in verse 17 and 19, and that's the Greek word agape. Agape, love. We, you may have read this. C.S. Lewis has the four loves, phileo, eros, Agape, this is agape love, God's love. And the best definition I know of for love comes from one of my favorite authors, and he says this, agape love seeks the flourishing of the object upon which it is directed. God's love looks at you, looks at the things you care about, looks at your business, and says, how can I bring flourishing? How can I bring flourishing to your family and to your school? And when we love others with agape love, we seek their flourishing. Paul is praying that the church will be known as a place of agape love. How in the world do you do that? How do you make that happen? Look with me again at verse 19. There's this kind of pairing of two phrases. Know the love that surpasses knowledge, filled with all the fullness of God. That phrase, you may be filled with all the fullness of God, there's an implication there. The implication is that there's something in you and me that's empty. Because otherwise, why would we need to be filled? There is an emptiness that all of us experience. This is Ecclesiastes 3.11, one of my favorite verses in all the scriptures. God has also set eternity in the human heart. The writer of Ecclesiastes, centuries before the Apostle Paul, knew that there was something in each person that could only be answered by God, by eternity, by knowing this agape love deep down. There's a part of you and a part of me in our hearts that is set, as the scripture says, arranged, so ordered that we can't satisfy ourselves until we know the eternity that God offers to us in Jesus Christ. We long to be filled with something, oh my gosh, and we fill it with everything else we could possibly think of filling it with. Money and success and homes and sales tactics and marketing and whatever you want to call it. All these good things that we turn into ultimate themes. So eternity is sitting in our hearts. The thing that answers that yearning is beyond us. And we get distracted. We lose sight of this reality so easily. We lose the call to agape love. We might say, yeah, we want it, but I mean, what? I'm busy. How am I going to get there? I have two suggestions for us. Simplicity and worship. Here's what I mean. Simplicity. How many of you have ever read an author named A.W. Tozer? Okay, one of my favorite authors. If you haven't read anything from his stuff, he's really, really good. One of the reasons I love Tozer is he never went to college. He didn't go to seminary. And he had an incredible ministry career, right? Like he was just an amazing writer. He would present the love of God in such powerful ways. And so I want to share a quote from a book of his that I've been reading lately called The Pursuit of God. Can we get this on the screen? This is Tozer's suggestion about how to love God. We must simplify our approach to God. And I'll talk about what each of these things means in just a minute. We must simplify our approach to God. We must strip down to the essentials, and they will be found to be blessedly few. (laughs) We must put away all effort to impress, and here comes my favorite line, and come with the guileless candor of childhood. The guileless candor of childhood. What is that? I want that. If we do this, without a doubt, God will quickly, quickly respond. Strip down to the essentials. What are the very, very, very few things, if you're a follower of Jesus, that you need to be able to do that? 
You need scripture. You need the people sitting around you. You need to be in community. You need to be in fellowship. Beyond that, there's not a lot. There are so many things that we could say we like, but what are the things that are truly essential? Similarly, I think we can also apply this calling to simplicity with this great phrase, the guileless candor of childhood. I, man, I was so convicted about this the other day. I heard somebody say, when we get to heaven, there will be no guile. And I was just like, oh man, like, can I have that now? <laughs> like, think about it. How many places do you go in the marketplace or in your school or in your interactions with other parents and families where you're not thinking about guile, but you're thinking about like, how do I look right now? How do I sound? Am I approaching this new client with the kind of professionalism that I think is going to get them into a long-term contract? I'm not saying those things are bad. I'm saying the, impl- the implication in that is that there is guile. You need to sort of be savvy and be able to talk to people appropriately, right? Guileless candor of childhood is how we're supposed to encounter our God. I think about my longest-term friendships, guys that I've been in relationship with for well over a decade, And if I ever showed up to hang out with one of those guys and I put on guile, if I tried to be slick or mince my words or whatever, my friend would go like, oh, come on. We're just hanging out. You don't don't need to talk that way. You don't need to do that, right? Can you guys relate to what I'm saying? If you brought guile into your closest relationships, the people that love you would go like, you don't need to do that. This is exactly what our God is saying to us through Tozer. You don't need to bring your guile into the way that you relate to me. This is faith like a child. This is the beauty of running up to a loving God and saying, God, I just want to be with you. I just want to sit with you. And I remind myself of this, not perfectly, but when I get up in the morning and I make my coffee and I'm sitting out on my back porch in my bathrobe and I'm just listening. I just want to sit with my father. That's it. No guile. I don't got no energy for guile. (laughs) Coffee hasn't kicked in yet. But that simple moment for me, that's what my heart needs. That's what I want to bring to my God. Do you have something that you can step into like that? Maybe you need to read a classic like Tozer. I I got a bunch of recommendations I would give to you. Maybe you need to step back into a long-term friendship where you don't need guile at all. And that person can pray for you and support you. That's where I think we might need simplicity in our lives deeply. Secondly, we need worship. We need to be here for worship every week. I challenged us last week throughout the summer. If you're in town, be here. If you are in town, make it a priority to be here. And the thing I want to highlight about worship, and I love that you guys are here this week leading us, we need to come to worship with the expectation that something's going to move in us emotionally. Right? Like we know when we come to a Bethany church, we're going to hear, at least hear, halfway decent teaching. And we might have our brains engaged. But do we come expecting our hearts, expecting our emotions to be engaged? Do we come asking God, like, God, please move in me and in your people during worship today, through the song, through prayer, through hearing a scripture? I was uh, at a worship service recently, and somebody shared a line from up in the front, and it just caught me in the heart. It was powerful, and I was not expecting it. I don't 100% agree with the theology of this line, but I'll share it with you guys because it would be kind of a tease to say it and then not say it. The line was this, Hell is the best God can do for people whom he deeply loves and who want nothing to do with him. Hell is the best God can do for people he deeply loves who want nothing to do with him. 
I cried when I heard that. It just came out of left field for me. And the reason I cried was, that's how much God loves me when I'm fighting him, when I'm trying to run away from him, that he loves me so deeply that even when I'm trying to turn my back on him, he's like, nope, I got something better for you. It's not hell. I have something better for you. Listen to me. That's how much God loves people who are not here. That's how much God loves people who are far from him, who appear to want nothing to do with him. And we're saying as a church, we want to care about those people. We want to step into what they're doing. My point isn't that the theology of that statement is something that we need to get down on. My point is, I wasn't expecting to be surprised emotionally in worship, and I was. And I'm so glad that I was. Have you had an experience like that, where you've showed up for something like this? Maybe you've been to Sing over at Green Lake, maybe you've been to another church, and you were just caught off guard, and you needed it. One of my favorite things as a pastor is when people come up to me after church on Sundays and they say, I'm so glad I came to church. I really just needed to worship God. I just needed to be in his presence today. Do we have that expectation? Do we just expect it to stay up here? Or do we have a part of us that is yearning for God to kind of open up that door? Sometimes it's a locked door to our emotions and just say like, no, I'm with you here. You need my agape love in your heart today. Guys, we need to be open to having our hearts broken to a deeper experience of God's love. Come here and expect to be moved. Worship extravagantly. That's the other encouragement I would offer. Now, we've got to move on to this last promise, and then we're going to wrap up. The promise is from the very end of the passage, 3.20 through 21. And this is a benediction. This is a blessing that Paul offers over the church. This is the end of the first half of Ephesians before he transitions into the second half. So listen to these words once again. Now to him who by the power at work within us is able to accomplish abundantly far more than we can ask or imagine, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. It's a powerful statement, and the way I want us to kind of look at this very briefly is to look at that phrase, able to accomplish abundantly far more than all we can ask or imagine. Other translations put it immeasurably more. Just shorten it to immeasurably more. If you wanted to write that down, that'd be a great phrase to think about this week, immeasurably more. And the idea for this is very simple, but it's also very humbling. God's dreams for you and for me are beyond our imagination. They're beyond what we can imagine. Now, that's a really easy statement to go abstract on very, very quickly. So I want us to try to make this real by thinking about what this could have looked like for the people in the church that heard it for the first time. Think about the first disciples of Jesus. These are people who were fishermen. They were just on the shore. They were doing their job. Jesus came up to them and said, follow me. I will make you fishers of men. And they step into this. Do you think they had any idea what they were getting into? Do you think they had any clue of the work that God wanted to do in and through them in the early church. I mentioned this earlier, but picture the closest hospital to your house. Wherever you live, just picture the nearest hospital to your house. Maybe you drive by it, maybe you work there. A lot of the tradition that started hospitals actually began in the church. Churches started to do these centers where people could be healed, where they could come and be with doctors, a lot of times where they didn't have to have any kind of money to do it. Could the people of the ancient church, if they walked through one of our modern hospitals and saw all the devices and saw all the things we used to care for people and the surgery rooms and the cancer wards, could an ancient Christian ever have imagined that that would be something that God wanted to do through his church? No chance. No chance. The original disciples were fishermen. 
That was not in their wheelhouse. The original disciples had no idea that God wanted to start a revolution through them that changed the political culture. The Roman Empire, like I mentioned earlier, would one day end their brutality and end their violence. The emperor of Rome would one day call himself a Christ follower. This was impossible. There's no way this could have happened. Guys, God is able. God makes that promise. He is able to do immeasurably more. He can start hospitals. He can bring political change. And especially if you're wrapped up in this political moment that we're in right now, whatever side you're on, whatever gets your hackles up, remember God is able. And transformation is coming. And this too shall pass. God is able. He has transformed the Roman Empire. Don't you think he can do something with us too? That's just a tiny glimpse, hospitals and politics, of the immeasurably, abundantly more that God wants to do. So here's what I want us to do. I want you to take a glimpse at your life in the week ahead. Maybe you got a meeting coming up. Maybe you're going to go talk to your kid's teacher. Maybe you are working on a project and you're hoping that you don't get an email from so-and-so because they're just the worst and I don't want to deal with them. What I want you to do, and you can picture this or you can write this on your bulletin and you can turn your bulletin in and after. No, I'm just kidding. We're not going to do that. Picture that place of great stress or great fear and write it in your heart or write it in your bulletin. God is able. You want to roll up to something this week that is impossible? Here's how you're going to do it. God is able. God is able. Will you say that with me? God is able. That's how we're going to go into the world this week. Not assuming defeat, not assuming failure, not assuming it ain't going to work out. If God don't want it to work out, it didn't need to work out. If the relationship that you're stressed about doesn't get straightened out, that's okay. God has something else for you to do. If it doesn't come together like you want, clearly God didn't think you needed it. But as much as you are able, as much as we are able to pray and ask for God to do what he wants to do in those relationships, in those sticky situations that we're in, God is able. I've been beating my head against the wall trying to figure out how to pull off a big thing for my parents because their 40th anniversary is coming up. And I'm trying to corral family members and siblings. It's like stacking marbles. God is able. God is able, you guys. And if he wants to pull this off, I want to be a part of it. I'll let you know how it goes. God is able, friends. That is your homework this week. You're going to go and apply that to your work. You're going to go and apply that to your kids, to your school, wherever you go in the week ahead. And you're going to apply that when we come here, when we worship together, because we're not just going to be about staying up here. We're going to say, God, close the gap between my head and my heart. Help me feel it. Help me feel your yearning for the people working right next to me, sitting right next to me at lunch, ride next to me on the bus as I go over the city. God is able, friends. God is able. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time together. And as we pray, we pray that you would unite our hearts now as we worship you, as we come back to a place where we could have some expectations I'm really glad that I can think a little bit about the sermon. I'm really glad he's done talking. Whatever our expectations may be, instead, connect our hearts to you, to your agape love, through singing. If we need to sing 
with all of our hearts right now. Let us do it. Give us the courage for that. If we need to just be quiet and reflect, if we need to go to the back of the room and just sit and kneel and pray and journal or whatever you are calling us to do in these moments, we ask that these words that we now get to sing together would touch our hearts and touch my heart. We thank you, God, that you are able. We thank you that there is great work in front of us as a church. Being together in fellowship, blessing schools, taking care of people on the margins. God, only you will do this mighty work. Would you do it in your way, at your pace, through each of us? We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.